Good afternoon or good morning, dear ladies and gentlemen, dear colleagues. It's my pleasure to introduce uh, Professor Eric Goldman and Mrs. Jess Myers to you. Many of you know uh, Dorontina Berisha already because she was part of this uh, Arspone series already in one of the sessions last week. Uh, today she's back again. Um, I will briefly introduce uh, all three of the speakers to you. Eric, Eric Goldman is a professor of law at uh, Santa Clara University School of Law in the Silicon Valley. Uh, there, he, there he has been uh, working quite intensely in, in the field of IP and IT law. I'm, I'm very sorry that I have some kind of background here now, which I should not have here. And I have no clue why this is happening. Okay, it's gone. Okay, so sorry again. Uh, as I said, um, Eric is a professor in, in IP and IT law. His research focuses on internet IP and advertising law topics. He's also running, running a blog um, that you will find um, under the address blog.ericgoldman.org. We'll put this in, into the show notes. And he is, of course, um, in the field for quite some years. So I think we have a rather similar CV. So since the 90s, he has been working uh, in the field of IP and IT and internet law. The reason why he is here today with us is that he's one of the most distinguished experts in section 230, which is, I may say this to the European um, followers in the room, which is quite an equivalent to the uh, e-commerce directive uh, in Europe. Uh, so very happy to have you here, Eric. Oh, my uh, pleasure. Thanks for Myers, including me. Myers uh, works with Professor Goldman. Um, she, she is a research assistant and advisor and mentor, and, and he is his, her mentor. She's also a former Twitter legal intern and currently a legal collaborator at Tech Freedom and has been working together with Professor Goldman on issues of Section 230 for quite some time now. And thirdly, Dorontina Berisha, uh, she's the reason why we uh, meet this uh, afternoon or this morning. Uh, Tina is working in our team here in Vienna for, I don't know how many years now, four or five years now. Uh, and she is uh, quite uh, intensely involved in many things we do, but she also was a student, an exchange student uh, in California, in Santa Clara. And she met uh, Professor Goldman and Mrs. Myers there. And she made the proposal that it would be uh, interesting and wise to, to invite uh, them to this podcast series. Very pleased to have all three of you here. Um, Eric, perhaps uh, we could start when I ask you, I mean, I assume that uh, Tina was not your very first European or Austrian law student. So what is the first thing uh, you think about when you hear about European and Austrian law students? How are they different from US American students? Are they different at all? Yeah, I've been teaching internet law for almost 25 years now. So I've had a steady stream of students uh, from uh, other parts of the world in my classes over the years. Um, it's especially uh, gratifying to have uh, the um, students from Europe um, in order to get into the exchange program in Santa Clara, it requires a student to really kind of um, have a good executive functioning skill. They kind of have to figure out all the different uh, logistics pieces uh, in order to make it happen. And so we often find that we get really uh, top uh, quality students from Europe. And it's great to have them in the classroom because otherwise we'd have a very US centric discussion and the European students uh, really uh, bring a very different perspective to the class. Um, from the get-go, uh, just in terms of the assumptions that they have, the uh, orientation that they bring. Um, and that helps keeps me honest as a professor uh, because I'm so used to, um, uh, to you know, thinking and talking about US law the way that we talk about it in the US and the Europeans are often sitting there scratching their heads saying, 
but Professor Goldman, have you considered the way we've been discussing this in Europe? Um, so it's really great to have that perspective in the classroom. It, it makes me a better professor. It makes the students uh, get a better experience. Um, so uh, I'm always thrilled when I see uh, students like Tina in our class. Okay, thank you very much. Um, that was in, in, indeed very impressive. Uh, Tina, could you perhaps also share how your view on this is? How is, how is your expectation? How was your experience? What would you think mm -hmm. uh, was the most uh, interesting part of, of your experience at Santa Clara? Mm -hmm. So I had a great experience at the Santa Clara Law School. People really um, were really welcoming us really warmly and teachers. The interesting thing for me was that the classes were pretty small. I was not used to small classes with um, a few students. And what I really appreciated was that during classes, we had the opportunity to communicate and interact with the students as well as the professors um, before class, during the class, after the class. And when it comes like content wise, the biggest difference was for me that cases decided by the court were really, really important in the United States. So the first thing or my first lesson or lecture I had was on how to write a legal analysis of a court decision, which I hadn't done it before at all. Mm. Yeah, that's probably also because of the, I mean, the differences in the legal system as a whole, right? So, okay. Yeah, and, and Jess, you met Tina in, in class or did, did, you, did you teach her or did you, were, were you a fellow colleague of her? So what, what exactly was the, the status? Yeah. <laughs> or was it both? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we sat in the same row as in, yeah. in, in internet law with Professor Goldman. So that's actually yeah. where I met her. Um, yeah. I don't think I, we, I taught her, but uh, we were definitely yeah. uh, fellow colleagues. So yeah. it was it was. Super Super cool having the opportunity to, to meet you, Tina. Yeah, yeah. So Eric, I think both of us share one part uh, in our biography, which is that both of us started to teach um, internet law in the 90s. And when you compare students today to those uh, that we had in the, in, the, in the late 90s or in the beginning of the 21st century, what is the main difference of today's students compared to those 15 or 20 years ago in the field? So uh, this year I reached a milestone. Uh, this is the first year that I had students who were born after I had started teaching internet law in uh, early 1996. Um, yeah. And so we are truly dealing with a different generation of students uh, who have grown up um, with a different slice of the internet than people of older generations uh, had yeah. dealt with. Um, so we talk about digital natives, but I really think that the better way to think about it are people who've never known anything other than the internet. Um, the internet has always been uh, infrastructure to them, like water or electricity or roads. It's just there and it will always be there. And uh, it's uh, taken as background assumptions um, that the internet will uh, give them the answers that they want, solve the problems that they expect to be solved um, and always work. Um, so it takes a lot of energy, I think, to help the students recognize that this is actually a pretty fortuitous um, uh, circumstance that we have an internet that we like we currently have, and that um, it shouldn't be taken for granted. Um, you know, mm -hmm. to think about that counterfactual: what would the internet look like if it? Uh, what would the world look like if we didn't have the internet today? Um, the students that I'm teaching nowadays um, really can't even imagine that. Um, and so it's a fun thought exercise, but really a challenging one, uh, given how deeply ingrained the internet is in their experience. 
Yeah, and I think uh, Corona, at least here in, in Europe, I think Corona brought a new quality into this again, because now, again, everything is even more connected than it was before. Uh, and in particular, when it comes to teaching and learning, I think uh, uh, at least here in Europe, we see a next stage of the development, however. So students are, at least, I don't know, Tina, whether you share that impression, but my impression as a teacher is that that teaching has has significantly changed here in Europe in the last weeks because of, uh, of Corona and because of the shutdown uh, of the universities. So uh, I think uh, this is something which is rather new to the younger generation of students, but for people in our generation, it would, be would have been completely unthinkable 20 years ago what's going on at the moment. So I don't know whether, whether Tina, you share my view that, that things have changed in Europe here? Yes, definitely. So yeah. Um, yeah. also for myself, I mean, um, the first online class I ever had was legal research, the class that we are teaching at the department. And yeah. now all the professors are switching to online platforms and trying to teach online and it's a new experience for students as well as teachers and yeah. I think well one of the advantages of corona is that um, more teachers get to know what kind of tools they are to use to do online teaching it can yeah. be quite beneficial yeah and Jess is it the same for you I mean is your learning experience significantly different now because of COVID-19 or is it is it quite just the same like before I would say it is significantly different. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of different factors at play. Uh, so for starters, it's it's just kind of difficult for students to be able to get out of this mindset of, okay, well, you know, home is home and, and school is school. And the nice thing about having school is that, you know, you would go to this building that was dedicated for learning, but when you're at yeah. home, you're you're now mixing your, your work-life balance a little bit. You're, you're mixing work and life. So. Um, I think students are, are definitely struggling in, in that regard. And then in, on another note, um, there's a lot less motivation. I think from what I've seen uh, with everything going on in the world right now, students are, are kind of just trying to, to get through it. Mm. Um, so again, the focus has changed. You don't have as much concentration on your studies. Um, and so that's from like the student's perspective. And then on the other side of it, it's, it's a very different experience for professors as well. I don't think a lot of these professors that we have um, really were prepared to have to drastically change their teaching as well. Um, I've kind of sat on both sides of it. So I've had an opportunity to help kind of teach a class and it's super disconcerting when you have, you know, if everyone's got their mics off, everyone's got their videos off, uh, it's, it's super challenging because you don't get that kind of feedback uh, that you're expecting to get from students that tells you whether they're understanding it or whether you need to kind of focus on a topic or not. So it's a really different dynamic now um, being online than it is in the classroom. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and still, I mean, one of the funny things that I see um, as, as one of the dinosaurs of, uh, of this field is that many of the legal sources we are dealing with still come from this time. So the e-commerce directive, for example, is from 2000. Uh, quite some of the thinking when it comes to intellectual property comes from the early 21st century. When it comes to electronic signatures, identification, authentication, e-commerce, everything, a lot of this is still based on legal sources coming from this very, very early phase uh, of the internet when, when Eric and myself started to teach this. Uh, and, and since then, uh, the whole world has gone through more than just one uh, very substantial changes and we are quite in the middle of another one that you are 
quite clearly reporting and and that i completely agree with because as i also my day-to-day experience in teaching and in day-to-day life is very different from what it was two months ago so my my question then uh to to all of you and possibly to eric first would be do you think that per se because of corona we need to rethink about the regulatory environment of the internet as a whole, or do you think that the, the rules will survive after this crisis? Well, I'll take a first crack at that, um, but I'll be interested to see what my uh, colleagues think uh, about that mm-hmm. as well. Um, from my perspective, uh, I think the um, virus has proven the, um, the centrality of the internet to our lives. Um, mm-hmm. That There are a lot of... Uh, economic and social functions that are now taking place only over the internet and that we can't imagine doing them any other way. So it's a binary thing. Either we do them over the internet or we simply forego them altogether. Um, and so I, you know, that's, I, to me, that's really good news because it actually helps with that counterfactual. What would life be like without the internet? We can say, well, we literally can imagine how we couldn't do the things that we wanna do in our lives without the, the tools. Um, the question is what happens when the other options come back? Um, mm-hmm. when we're able to go back to interacting with each other in physical space. Um, does the internet remain the, the preferred mechanism to engage in those activities or does it become just one of the options? Um, mm-hmm. Or will we go back and say, you know what, actually the internet was the best option at the time, but it's now inferior to the physical space options. Um, and I think that's going to come up with things like education. I think it's going to come up with things like government. It's going to come up with things like uh, like uh, working in, in uh, service jobs. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of questions about um, what the internet's role will be when we have a choice. What did we learn from this experience that shows us that the internet actually is the best options that we have available to us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that will be very interesting to see because when I see the debate in my uh, with my fellow colleagues now when it comes to teaching and also when I hear what uh, Jess told us before about her experience in learning, uh, I think the the average perspective is very different from mine because mine would be, of course, the internet is the preferred option and I would I, I very much prefer teaching and learning from the internet, but there are quite many people who, who don't share that opinion, right? And it will be interesting to see how universities will look like in two or three years when this crisis is over, how much of this internet wave that all of us see at the moment will then still be there. Um, I don't know, Jess, what would you expect? So do you think that that next year's classes will be very similar to those that you had a year ago or will there be any difference? Yeah, I've I've been thinking about this a lot actually, like what the new normal is supposed to look like. I I think for starters, um, just because things are difficult right now, um, Mm. having moved to technology, doesn't mean that we can't adapt and, and make things better. I think this was in a really, you know, as, as horrible as this experience has been, I think it's also been a really important one to kind of show that we are capable of using the internet to kind of get through maybe mundane tasks. Like, um, for example, the work from home, if work from home is more successful, um, I know that that's a lot easier on people. Um, and so mm-hmm. it kind of showed like, we can move our meetings online, we can successfully and, and productively be online. Um, and then when it comes to school, again, we're it's a challenge right now, but I think over time, um, it's something that we'll be able to adapt to and that professors will have to change the way that they structure their classroom. But I think that that's a very doable change um, just as the years kind of go by. And so again, I think that's gonna show that this is something that that can be done and it might open up 
more doors and more educational opportunities for people that may not have um, the ability to to travel to a campus or you know for example like Tina um, you could take more Santa Clara law classes you know mm -hmm. but if you enjoyed it but now you're taking mm -hmm. them online because we have that ability to do that so mm -hmm. I, I think it'll be different um, mm -hmm. but I think it might be a good a good kind of different yeah. Yeah, I also agree. I, I expect that after the crisis, it will be more of a mix. So most teachers probably will still want to teach in, in classrooms, but at least they could live stream them or record them and so that students that cannot attend can just uh, follow up with like from home or from wherever they are. Yeah, but one of the outcomes I would see at least at the moment would be that the big platforms, so intermediaries like like Google, Facebook, YouTube, etc., are again uh, winners of the development that we see at the moment. So uh, I mean, they are in my perception even more dominant than they were before. So that might trigger the question in how far uh, the regulatory framework for those intermediaries needs uh, to be changed again. And that, that's a debate that uh, is quite intensely um, uh, to be seen here in Europe, um, and I assume also in the US, um, all in particular when it comes to liability exemptions uh, for intermediaries, uh, which brings us quite into the heart of uh, your special field, uh, Eric, and also Jess, um, which is Section 230, which is about liability and, and, and possible exemptions to liability um, for intermediaries. So could you kindly, perhaps uh, for the European audience here, explain um, the, the core concept behind Section 230 and then uh, explain to us in how far you think that this is under pressure now because of the corona-related developments that we have been talking about? Let's just start by uh, establishing its legal framework. Uh, Section 230 yeah. was enacted, as you mentioned, in uh, the mid-90s. Uh, it was enacted in 1996. Um, and it was really the uh, first US law to expressly embrace and understand the internet. It was compended with other laws that were also uh, targeting the internet, but in a much harsher and more punitive way. Those laws got stripped out. What we got left with was a law that says that websites aren't liable for third-party content. It's a really basic principle and it's easily summarized, but it gets everyone thinking, well, surely that can't be the rule. Let's talk about all the exceptions. Let's look for all the stress points with that. Let's try and change that basic principle that websites aren't liable for third-party content. Now, there are some statutory exceptions, intellectual property being one of them, um, but, but, the, but the basic principle has remained true for the last 25 years. Um, and it differs from the e-commerce directive in a couple of pretty fundamental ways. Um, the most important is that uh, Section 230 applies even in the face of some kind of demand or takedown notice. Um, mm -hmm. So if a service has gotten notice that there is a, a potentially uh, illegal or um, uh, a tortious item on its service, um, Section 230 says if they ignore it, they're okay. Um, the e-commerce directive says that's a guaranteed route to liability. Uh, the, um, uh, uh, the member intellectual property is accepted. So the e-commerce directive applies to intellectual property um, as well as other types of liability. Section 230 doesn't apply to intellectual property, but it picks up all those other types of cases um, that uh, might apply. And so one of the other differences then uh, with uh, Section 230 is that because it doesn't cover intellectual property, we have separate rules for those. Um, but it covers um, uh, so many different use cases uh, that you just um, 
uh, assume are going to have different legal treatment. Um, but Section 2 says they're all the same. Doesn't matter how you plead the case. Doesn't matter how the complaint is structured. The website's not liable for third-party content. Um, so that principle is, has been, I think, an essential part of why uh, the US internet has thrived over the last quarter century. Um, but it has created uh, or contributed to uh, the development of some internet incumbents, like you mentioned, Google and Facebook. Um, and there's a lot of stress about the power that they have, the amount of money that they're making, and possibly the kinds of consequences they're having on their society, which has led to uh, the evolution of a set of groups of uh, critics of those enterprises that are determined to find a way to take them down. Um, mm -hmm. And Section 230 is one of the vectors of attack. Antitrust law is another vector. Privacy law is another vector. Um, but the, the, the goal is actually Google and Facebook. Section 230 is just the prop or the, uh, mm. uh, the set piece that can be used to try to uh, attack them. It's actually misguided. I'm happy to talk about why that change to Section 230 won't matter to Google or Facebook. Um, but uh, the battles over Section 230 are often a proxy for these uh, broader stresses about the internet incumbents. Um, and uh, everyone else who relies on Section 230 is kind of along for the ride. Yeah, I I, th I I can confirm that the the debate is very similar in Europe. So um, the the debate on the reform of the e-commerce directive is just one attack vector, and and the targets are always Facebook, Google, um, in particular Facebook and Google. Um, but it's not the only one. Antitrust and and data protection, both of them being equally prominent here in Europe, and also intellectual property legislation, where where we have a significant change to see at the moment, which is that the uh, e-commerce directive is no longer, and, and the privileges coming out of the e-commerce directive are no longer the leading principles when it comes to intellectual property. So quite a similar development than the one that you had already in, in 1996 in the US, that uh, intellectual property now comes to a different, under a different regime. Um, but, but perhaps, Jess, may I ask you, do you, I mean, from a US perspective, would you think that this uh, keeping intellectual property out of the scope of Section 230 is that evident? So is this something that is clearly understandable from a US background, or is this something which can only be understood if you put it into a historical perspective, going back to 1996? <laughs> So I'm I'm not sure if I I understand understand your question. Um, so let me rephrase. Uh, as as Eric rightly put it, the e-commerce directive doesn't exclude per se intellectual property from the liability exemptions of intermediaries. So in principle, liability exemptions in Europe apply also when it comes to intellectual property which is a long story because of course intellectual property has been in the center of quite some cases and, and, and discussions and reports. And, and the US differently from, the U, from Europe has excluded intellectual property from the beginning from the applicability of section 230 if I understand it correctly. And the question to you now would be in how far this looks evident to you that intellectual property is such a different animal that it should not be put under rule like section 230 or whether this is something which would need to be rediscussed nowadays 
Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting question. I'm probably going to actually throw it back to Professor Goldman, who is the mm -hmm. intellectual property expert here, but I will um, throw it, I will throw out there, we do have um, a safe harbor for intellectual property infringement in the United States. It's under mm -hmm. um, the uh, Digi Digital Millennium Copyright Act, um, and it's, it's Section 512. Um, and so that is a separate, what we call a notice and takedown statute um, that mm -hmm. basically a, a web service has to provide an opportunity for um, a copyright owner to be able to report um, an intellectual property infringement. And then um, that service uh, is kind of obliged to, to take it down. Mm -hmm. um, and this has been somewhat problematic actually, uh, because what we're seeing is um, because they are so reliant on this safe harbor and the safe harbor kind of has a this this notice and takedown requirement that section 230 doesn't have um, these services are a lot quicker to remove content without you know maybe verifying or uh, you know uh, establishing that that's something that should be removed so we're seeing um, this this issue where um, a lot of people will abuse the 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 512 uh, the harbor to kind of report content that wouldn't likely be a uh, considered a traditional intellectual property infringement um, just to have that content removed. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I know Professor Goldman has, has touched on this in uh, kind of copying, kind of calling it like a copyright memory hole where you can you can get around. Um, you can you can do like other claims and violations that you know may not be related to IP, but that get your speech taken down. So I know that is mm -hmm. that is particularly problematic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, if I can add to that, um, and maybe we can include a link to the paper just mentioned. It's called Copyright's Memory Hole, and it uh, in the show notes, and it's yes. uh, designed to show uh, how if we have these two different levels of treatment uh, for different types of claims, how uh, people who want to scrub the internet will t go to the most restrictive uh, type of option and then weaponize it. Uh, so we've mm -hmm. seen the weaponization of copyright takedown notices for purposes of nothing to do with copyright. It's just, they can't get around section 230. So section 512 provides a better mechanism for them to try and advance their sensorial, uh, uh, sensorious goal, uh, sensorial goals. Um, so, uh, so I think that that's really um, the, the question that I would ask this group or rhetorically is, can we look at this differential treatment between uh, copyright on the one hand and Section 230 uh, preempted claims on the other hand and decide, is there something we can learn between the two? Which one is the better model? The notice and takedown scheme, the, uh, the more uh, close to absolute immunity. Um, what have we learned in the last 25 years that tells us which one works better? Um, mm -hmm. Or, in fact, maybe we've learned in the last 25 years, there really is a reason to treat them differently. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, uh, the, the average answer that, that you would receive in Europe on this question would be none of the two worked, right? <laughs> so mm -hmm. so the, uh, I think the, uh, the, the mainstream doctrine here in Europe at the moment is very skeptical, and in particular also in Brussels. So when, 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 when the, the, the reform of the e-commerce directive is debated in in, within the European Commission, I think the, the mainstream perception at the moment would be that not even the notice and take down approach really helped a lot uh, because it did not, uh, it did in particular not hinder uh, major players like uh, Facebook and Google and others to further increase their, their rhetorical power. And it did not hinder um, um, intermediaries not to chase uh, infringements um, of of all kinds of laws uh, on the internet. So I think the 
the, the, the average answer in Europe would be, we need something new, uh, which looks very different and which makes, uh, uh, gets rid of these uh, exemptions um, in, in, in the regulatory framework. Um, yeah, and I, th I think we're seeing that kind of trend here in the US as well, uh, that in general, um, everyone's looking to dismantle the existing legal system and make it more, uh, to increase the scope of legal liability. The one thing I'll note is that there is a floor about how far that can go that's set by the First Amendment. We're not exactly sure where that First Amendment floor is set, um, but there is a minimum floor. And I, my guess is it is higher than any of the protections for free expression that you have in Europe. So, um, so we're more likely to run into that First Amendment floor as those regulators keep deconstructing the, uh, uh, the, uh, um, uh, the legal scheme. Yes, yes. And I think uh, probably in the US, at least I would expect this to be, I think the pe people are more aware that any change in Section 230 and similar norms will again lead to a situation where players like Facebook and, and Google will profit from and it will not hit them. But on the contrary, it will make it more difficult for new market entries to appear. Uh, which is not really fully understood here in Europe, I think. I think the, the European legislation is more optimistic that changes in, in the regulatory framework might change uh, market, uh, might, might change or might increase the possibility for new players to enter the market, which is in my view wrong. But uh, I, I think Eric, we share our view that this is not really what's going to be, right? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, here in the US even, a lot of um, regulators either don't care um, or are, are okay with the idea that um, uh, mm -hmm. any regulatory change is gonna in, uh, further instantiate the incumbencies. Um, I think it's obvious. I don't know mm -hmm. how anyone can think otherwise. Um, and yet there are a lot of people who are choosing to live in a fancy land and thinking that that won't be the case, that they'll be able to stick it to Google or Facebook. Um, mm -hmm. And we haven't discussed, but let me just acknowledge, um, you were talking about different regulatory systems. Um, mm -hmm. I've been keeping a close eye on the UK online harms uh, proposal, which strikes me as the one of the next wave of regulatory innovations we're going to see across the world, um, mm -hmm. including attempts here in the US to do something similar. And uh, it's clear that these are going to uh, completely favor Google and Facebook um, by basically putting them into a regulatory dance uh, with the regulators and keeping it so that anyone else can't get into that dance. Mm -hmm. Strange, yeah, really strange. Uh, however, I mean, one of the one of the Corona-related problems within this problem is now that again uh, these major players uh, are in Europe quite intensely under debate because of this, uh, the fact that uh, they might not be very successful in eliminating misleading content. And as they are so important to, uh, to, to the day-to-day -day experience and media consumption of so many Europeans, there is again an additional uh, pressure on them to more actively uh, censor, I would call it, so forgive me for that word, uh, censor content on the internet. And I would assume that this debate is also uh, quite important at the moment in the US, isn't it? You know, we don't know how to have that discussion because mm -hmm. we don't really have a clear understanding of what constitutes misinformation, mm -hmm. especially in a situation like this, where it's really a health or science discussion that's being played out by lay uh, non-experts. And mm -hmm. so 
pretty much everything we're hearing is some form of misinformation um, mm -hmm. or subject to scientific or uh, um, factual debate. Um, mm -hmm. But the real struggle that, that I think we're having here in the U.S. is that the government has become one of the biggest sources of misinformation. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, as you know, and I'm sure the Europeans are watching closely, our president is saying some really horrendous things that uh, qualify as misinformation under any legitimate definition of that term. Um, mm. And so what do we really want uh, the internet companies to do in that circumstance? Do we want them mm. to shut off government uh, announcements because they're clearly lying to us? Mm. Do we want them to try to rebut them somehow and take the, the role of being the fourth estate or some kind of quasi-government um, uh, adjudicator of truth? Um, mm. Do we want to let the, the government have its say and then... Um, uh, hope that the marketplace of ideas will correct that uh, misimpression. And mm. the problem that we have here in the U.S., and I'm pretty sure you have it in Europe as well, is that um, the regulators want all of the above. They want mm. it to, like, you know, they want uh, uh, the government to have it say, but they want uh, the, the misinformation to be eliminated. It's like pick one. And mm. I don't think we can pick one. Mm -hmm. and, and what would you recommend to do then? Keep everything as it is or... So um, that's a pretty complicated question. Uh, so on this particular topic, it's been my personal view that we should uh, turn off the government's ability to talk uh, via social media directly to its constituents. That the mm -hmm. social media companies cannot police what the government's saying. They can't arbitrate its truth. Um, and therefore, allowing the government to have direct unfiltered communications with the, their constituents creates the opportunity for the government to perniciously lie to its constituents. Mm -hmm. So I think the better solution is when there's actually a media filter, some kind of intermediary who is fact-checking the government statements as they come out um, and saying, okay, President Trump said that you can go and digest uh, this uh, fish tank cleaner and this will fix your innards. Um, and say, actually, here's the following health experts to tell you that this will cause you to die. Um, without that kind of checking in real time by experts who, who are organized through the media, mm. um, uh, I don't know that the marketplace of information uh, of ideas can, can fully fix it, which is mm. why we, need, we can't let that kind of unfiltered communication uh, take place. So um, that's actually probably not what you would expect, I'd say, uh, because mm. normally I'd like everyone to have their say. Um, mm. But it turns out that because the government is such a key source of misinformation in the current environment, um, we have to find a way to, to, to fix that. And uh, mm. I don't know how the internet companies can do that unilaterally. Mm. But I think one of the problems, at least that we in Europe we have on this, it's not only the government uh, giving all kinds of misleading information, but as you rightly mentioned, everyone is a source of, of misleading information. And some do this on purpose and some do it because they can't avoid it. Uh, and, and that makes it completely uh, random, uh, I would say, uh, how uh, each and everyone's filter bubble looks like and, and what each of us therefore believes as some kind of, of truth at the moment. And it, it's very, very difficult then to, to put some kind of... Uh, regulatory role on, on those uh, intermediaries. Um, and actually, this is something which was already seen as a problem in the 90s. So I think, Eric, to come back to this again, I think the basic idea of all these rules in, that came up in the 90s is still very true and still very clear, which is there is a difference between a traditional media 
um, channel and and a social network and or a website or an internet service, and we need to keep these differences. I don't know, Jess, would you agree on this, or is it is it very different from what you would say? Yeah, I think I think the internet is you know special, unique, different. It's mm -hmm. it provide gives us all these kind of nuances compared to traditional media. And so the one thing I've been kind of thinking about is we're talking about. Um, should intermediaries be liable or should regulator, regulators step in regarding, um, you know, COVID-19 content. But we were having these same discussions regarding political advertising just months ago. Yes. And I think, you know, the next topic, whatever that's going to be, it's going to be something different from COVID, but we're going to be coming back to these same conversations, I think, as long as the internet is still around. And so I'm really, I, I'm pressed to figure out um, how we can draw regulatory lines every single time something new uh, like that kind of comes up. Uh, I think it's super important too that we're very specific about the problem that we're trying to solve. So, you know, if it's misinformation or disinformation, I think mm -hmm. Professor Goldman got at it, you know, exactly. We, we need to be able to first define what misinformation is. And that definition is, is so different um, depending on the, the concept that you're talking, the, the topic that you're, you're, you're discussing, you know? So, mm -hmm. I know this is this is also a challenge for you know some of the bigger players right now. I've I've had discussions with with them. Uh, a lot of folks think that um, these these services should just remove anything related to to COVID nineteen, whether it's misinformation, disinformation, or fact. It shouldn't be on on the internet. And the problem with that is that we're also living in a in a time where people are relying on the internet to now make money or to, um, you know, even for mental health reasons or whatnot, but um, user generated content is kind of taking the forefront in, um, you know, in, in people's lives. And so is it, is it smart to, or is it right to say, okay, well, no one can create content about um, COVID-19 uh, when COVID-19 content is literally everyone is everyone is reading about and, and tweeting about and talking about, um, is, is that something that we really, we want to restrict? So, but then again, how do you draw that line on, okay, this person can talk about COVID-19, this quote unquote trusted news source can talk about it, but this person can't, or, you know, this person can do a parody on this information, but because you know, if, if it's not, if it's not obviously a parody, then someone might, might misinterpret. There's so many, there's so many different questions here that it's it's almost impossible to be able to draw a regulatory line um, for these services to hold them accountable. And then once you draw those lines, that's the, the the part of the internet that just says, okay, well, users will then push the envelope and you'll have to continue continuously redraw the lines. Yes, yes. Tina, I mean, you saw both debates in, in the US and in Europe. So, so what, what would your answer be on this? Do you see any differences in how Europeans deal with this and, and the US political debate is taking I the think, issue? I think it's pretty similar when it comes to fake news. I mean, fake news is a more, a bigger topic, I think, right now in the United States because it was connected to the elections, um, which wasn't really a case here in, in Europe, as far as I know. But um, I agree with Jess, it's really difficult to decide on what is right, what is misinformation, what is a fact, what is just an opinion, how far can we go, do we restrict the freedom of speech then by, by um, deciding on what fake news is or not, it's a really complicated and difficult topic and you would also have to spend a lot of money for, for the stuff to look through all of that or are you using artificial intelligence or what kind of tools or means would you have to even decide on what 
what is fake news and what is not. Yeah. And, and do you have, does any of you have any opinion on approaches, uh, for example, chosen by Facebook to, to make up their own regulatory framework so that advisory boards or external people, ethical clearance boards, etc., should help them in assessing what is legitimate content and what needs to be deleted? Would that be an approach that you would, that you would uh, support? So some kind of non- state and non-legal approach to regulate uh, things? Yes, do you want to chime in? Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I'm interested to see how the uh, Facebook over, I guess, oversight yeah. board ends up playing out. I think it's an interesting concept. Um, I still think the same content moderation challenges are still going to exist, though, whether you have an independent board or not. Um, I thought that was a, a great I guess, approach from Facebook mm -hmm. uh, to kind of ensure diverse content decision-making. Um, but, you know, at the, at the same time, time will tell. We're, we'll have to see mm -hmm. if, if it really changes anything, if it's really any different than, than you know, how Facebook handles content now. Um, and again, uh, content policy has to be changed as well from, from the head. So, Facebook will have to make their own internal decisions along with the board if we are going to see any any real change. Yeah, I think the thing I find most interesting about the board is it's trying to prop up the overall artifice that Facebook has adopted, that it can have a single set of Facebook law that applies universally across mm -hmm. its entire population. Mm -hmm. And uh, so if the board pronounces, this is the new state of Facebook law, and it conflicts with the law of one or more jurisdictions, I don't really see how Facebook has solved its problem. Mm -hmm. um, it can blame the board to say, well, this is why we, we're now digressing from local uh, law because this board told us we could, um, but I don't think it's gonna change how the regulators are gonna respond. Um, mm -hmm. So to me, I think the, the biggest challenge isn't the board per se. I actually think that there's some merit to the idea that Facebook's pursuing but it's all in support of a, a proposition I don't think it can win in the end, which is that it can have a single law across its entire 3 billion user base. Yeah, yeah. Do you see any, any significant differences in how the different major companies approach the problem? So do, would, you, would, you, would you want to say that, I don't know, Facebook is doing better than Twitter or, or Google is doing worse than then Yahoo or whatever. I mean, Yahoo is no longer in the market, I know, but any other. So whatever you you would, I mean, Yahoo would have been one of those that we would have debated in the 90s, right? So is there any any clear difference that you would like to make here or, or, or are they very similar? No, I really think Facebook stands alone uh, mm -hmm. in that Facebook has adopted a single uniform set of Facebook policies or what I called Facebook mm -hmm. law um, that it tries to apply across all jurisdictions. The more mm -hmm. traditional approach for internet companies is to uh, set up a local subsidiary um, and then uh, 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 modify its service offerings and policies to reflect the rules of that local country. Um, yeah. And that has some downsides, but it, it solves the friction that cr Facebook has created by trying to tell the countries, I don't mm -hmm. like your law, I'm not planning to comply with it. I'm going to comply with this thing called I, that I call Facebook law, and you're just going to have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I think one of the reasons why regulators across the globe are gunning for Facebook is because of the fact that Facebook has broken the ranks from the industry standard approaches for localizing their services. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jess, would you agree? I think you, you agree, right? <laughs> I, 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 I think I cautiously agree. I, I think... Mm-hmm. I think it's really hard to compare internet services and the way that they approach content moderation, Mm -hmm. because again, you have so many differences. What works for Facebook may not work for Twitter's users Mm -hmm. or for for Google or for YouTube. So I I think the better question really will, will get at, and again, that's why I said time will tell is, is, is the oversight board doing, are they productive in getting us to a more, I guess, socially productive conversation or a socially healthy conversation? And so that's where I would like to see what ends up happening. Are they improving social discourse? Is it staying the same? Um, because I mean, there's a lot of different policies you can compare it to, like with Twitter and YouTube, for example, where what what they're doing, I, if you want to use COVID or you want to do political advertising, it's actually greatly helped um, the misinformation, disinformation um, issue, or it's it's helped um, bolster communities and, and their conversations. So I, I think it's hard to make that comparison because it really does depend on the content, depend, it depends on the issue, and it depends on the, the users. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, let me perhaps finish with a very general and very difficult question to all of you. And I will start with Dorantina, if I may. Tina, if I ask you, uh, would you expect the e-commerce directive to still be in force in two years? So after this crisis, or would you expect that the European legislator will have come up with something completely new now trying to regulate fake news um, and similar phenomenons on the internet more aggressively than it is at the moment? And I will then ask the two U.S. guests of this, whether this is the same, what we would expect with uh, Section 230 to happen. But Tina, perhaps you start with the e-commerce directive. Um, I think, I assume that in two years, probably you will try to more aggressively try to regulate um, this. But honestly, I wouldn't know how you would be able to do that. Hmm. I wouldn't know what kind of tools they would use. I wouldn't know how they can decide whether something is fake or not. And I think a lot of people would always bring the argument of of the freedom of speech. So I think it will be difficult in Europe to to have something like content moderation, someone looking through all the contents and see whether something is misleading or not. Mm -hmm. Like technically it will be difficult and legally, I think there are a lot of reasons why it might be a problem, Mm -hmm. especially the freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. Jess, would you continue? Yeah, so from the, the, the US side, um, I have my concerns about Section 230. I think anyone in this field does, you know, just seeing how things have played out recently in Congress. Um, but I also think that we're going to be having this conversation probably forever. Um, again, like mm-hmm. I said, whether it's political advertising, whether it's COVID-19, um, you know, the drug o- opioid crisis or, or children and, um, you know, sexual abuse materials. Um, I think we're, we're going to continuously come back to this topic of, is the internet harming people and how can we regulate the internet? So uh, the concern part of me about Section 230's fate comes from the fact that there's a lot of bipartisan dislike for Section 230. And there's also this, you know, general, uh, I guess, feeling of, you know, falling out of love with the internet, um, with just society. Um, so I'll be interested to see what actually, what actually comes of that. 
On the other side, though, um, I think I think the, the the current generation is we're seeing a lot of tech positivity. I think the the current situation that we're in with the health crisis is showing how much um, we're really relying on the internet. Uh, so. It, it, to me, it could it could really go either way, but I, I don't think I, I think the more important point is that I don't think these conversations are going away, and we need to be thinking critically um, what we're going to do from there. Yeah, Eric. Uh, so, from my perspective, uh, COVID nineteen has shown us uh, just how important the internet is to our society, and what really stood out to me is how quickly we were able to transition from. Um, uh, offline institutions into replicating their functions online using services that are actually in existence and able to do what they do because of Section 230. So whether that's transitioning over to Zoom or transitioning over to an, e an ed tech platform um, or uh, moving uh, conversations over to uh, social media services, whether that's Facebook or Slack or wherever it is, um, all of these services are around and able to do what they do because of Section 230. And, uh, and, and so and we just take that for granted. We just assume that we can flip that switch and all of a sudden um, we no longer have face-to-face -face meetings, but we can have these online meetings like the one we're currently having, the one that will be hosted on YouTube. And all of that's taking place because of the backdrop of Section 230. Um, so it, in a logical world, we would draw from that insight wow, Section 230 has helped us uh, operate our society in the face of a pandemic, and it allowed us to curb the pandemic by giving us adequate substitutes for the face-to-face -face interactions. What can we do to advance that cause? How can we help technologists continue to build the kind of tools and infrastructure we need in order to be able to combat the next pandemic or whatever the next crisis will be that keeps us from being able to interact face-to-face? Unfortunately, and Jess was getting at this, there's a wide list of people who have been activated as viewing Section 230 as their problem. Um, some of them are victims groups, in many cases, who have legitimate concerns. Um, others are just purely rent-seeking. So for example, the media industry keeps bashing Google and Facebook not really because Google and Facebook are threats to them per se, but just because they want the money. And so mm -hmm. there's a lot of competitive gaming going on. And so when we get out of the crisis, when we're back to having, quote, rational discussions about uh, internet policy, we're going to have all the same dynamics about um, uh, you know, the tension between uh, free speech and, uh, and harmful speech. And then we're going to have this continued overlay of competitive gaming um, that is going to uh, uh, really distort the conversation. Um, so my hope is we take away the lesson that Section 230 is what allowed us to fight the pandemic using technology tools. What we're going to take away is there's new incumbents that we want their money. And uh, that puts Section 230 in substantial jeopardy. Yeah. Thank you very much. That was a very, very strong and in some parts pessimistic and other parts very optimistic um, final statement. I appreciate it that you took the, your time. Very, very uh, grateful we are here in Vienna for this. Uh, thank you. I'm very much looking forward to hopefully seeing you somewhere sometime uh, in, in reality and not just on the internet. Uh, thank you to all three of you. Have a wonderful day, afternoon or morning um, and stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.